At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. God created us for community, and with community comes conflict. It seems ever-present in our day-to-day lives, from little things to big things. In today's society, cancel culture is prevalent, and when there's conflict in our lives, it can be easy to turn to the ways of canceling one another. Knowing how to resolve conflict lovingly is an essential component of our lives. When we resolve conflicts out of love, we honor Christ. Join us in our new series, Conflicted, Pursuing Peace in a Cancel Culture, where we'll turn to the Gospel of Matthew to see what Jesus has to say about handling conflict. A moment and actually read our passage this morning. We're going to be in Matthew 18, verses 21 to 35. Um, and so, and then I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to preach. So, That's the way it's going to go. So, all right, Matthew records for us in Matthew 18. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is God's word. Thanks. Let's pray together. Lord, we are grateful for your word and the teachings of our King and Savior, Jesus. And as we come to them now, I pray that you, by your spirit, would enlighten the eyes of our hearts to hear these words, these instructions given to your community. That our hearts would not only be enlightened, but would be receptive to receive what you have to say to each one of us that you would help to align us together towards your heart and your way and your vision and your kingdom. So God, by your spirit, where we're out of step with your way, would you bring conviction? Where we need greater faith, would you move that we might trust you more? Where there might need to be repentance, bring repentance, Father God. Where there might need to be encouragement, in the midst of struggle, bring encouragement. God, you know what we need in order to be conformed more to your image, both individually and collectively as a community. So we simply want to offer ourselves to you and say, do your work now in us 
by your spirit for the glory of your son. We ask this in his name. Amen. Western culture today is kind of an interesting mix of ideologies. Uh, Most sociologists that would look at our culture would say that we live in kind of a post-Christian society. Meaning, for many decades, Christianity kind of held a prominent place within our culture and our discussion, our cultural imaginations. But with the rise of secularism in recent decades, Christianity and other religions have been moved more towards the margins. And because of that, it's kind of left us in this post-Christian era, which has an interesting effect on us as a culture. On one hand, there's still a lot of kind of sentiment, some impulses that we feel culturally that align with a lot of the values that you might see in historic Christian ideas and principles. And yet, we've kind of moved away culturally from that framework and how we think or approach issues. And it kind of leaves us a little bit scattered in how we process things, how we engage things. One pastor uh, that I like, Mark Sayer, says that we live in a society that wants the kingdom without the king. We want the values of the kingdom without the way of Jesus. And because of that, we're often kind of mixed up a little bit. And I think there's probably no area that's more visible or helps kind of exemplify that than the issue of forgiveness. On one hand, there's a cultural impulse that naturally values the idea of forgiveness. We, we, we don't see it as a negative. We see it generally, for the most part, as a positive. But there's been a shift, actually, in recent decades to begin to argue that forgiveness can actually be harmful for uh, society. For instance, in the wake of some of our recent cultural movements like Me Too or the response to George Floyd, there was a lot of discussion around the issues of forgiveness and articles written in major publications that argued that forgiveness was actually a means in which we excused people in power from being held accountable for justice or forgiveness often could be used to minimize the experience of victims. And there were calls to remove forgiveness as an act within our society. We wrestle. Is forgiveness a positive or a negative? We feel an impulse, but we're unsure, and we don't even always have the framework to understand. On top of that, there's a lot of different understandings within our culture of what forgiveness even is. Some people think forgiveness can only happen if there's genuine aspects of retribution or real remorse or that there has to be something in order of forgiveness, almost that there's a merit that goes with it. Others would say, no, just forgive and forget. Let it go. Live at peace with everyone. And oftentimes, this is kind of this wrestling idea that we, we know forgiveness, yes, but what does that actually look like? An older pastor, I think, has a great description of our culture from over a century ago, but in many ways, it's still relevant today. He says, nothing superficially seems simpler or easier than forgiveness. Nothing, if we look deeply, is more mysterious or more difficult. So how do we actually understand forgiveness? We can recognize the challenges within our culture, but how do we actually embrace it in the way of Jesus, in following him? We've been in this series that we've called Conflicted, where we've been looking at the teachings of Jesus on life in his kingdom community in Matthew chapter 18. For Jesus, his kingdom is meant to be marked by shalom, a harmony and peace that exists that brings flourishing for all. 
But Jesus recognizes that his kingdom community was going to exist in a world of sin and brokenness. And therefore, in Matthew 18, he gives a series of instructions to his community of how they should approach life together in order to be a community of flourishing in the midst of a broken world. And so he gives them values, or what I've called throughout this series, postures to be embraced in order to pursue flourishing in the midst of sin and brokenness. Jesus begins by calling his community to embrace a posture of humility, that we are to become like little children in order to experience the reality of his kingdom. He next calls his community to embrace a posture of repentance, that we take sin seriously, turning from it in our lives and embracing the way of God. He reminds us that we're supposed to have a posture of pursuing love, that we leave the 99 to go after the one. And last week we saw how we're supposed to have a posture of correction and restoration with one another. Being willing to pursue one another and restore when sin becomes present in our community. But today, Jesus is going to call us to a final posture, a posture of forgiveness. For Jesus, in a world of sin and brokenness, if we're to be a community of his kingdom, then God's family forgives because they have been forgiven. And in many ways, it becomes the key linchpin for how his community will be different in the midst of a world of sin and brokenness. Jesus begins by calling his community in this passage for forgiveness. Look with me again at verse 21. So Jesus has just laid out in the previous passage, as we said, kind of this call for how his community can approach when sin is present in general. His disciple Peter, though, raises a question. I always love Peter. He's close to my heart because he's always the first one to talk, which is my reality often as well. But Peter comes up to Jesus and said to him, verse 20, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? So Peter takes Jesus' teaching on the reality of sin present in the community. He says, yeah, but what happens if someone sins? Remember last week we saw sin is the idea of missing the mark, missing the way of the kingdom. But this time it's personal. They sin against me, that it affects me. How am I supposed to respond in that reality? And how much am I meant to forgive him? Now, there was a lot of discussion in Jesus' day about the reality of relational forgiveness when someone sinned against another. And most of the rabbis in Jesus' day, based on some teaching in the prophet Amos, would say that you should give, forgive someone up to three times. But Peter actually seeks and understands, I think, a little bit of what Jesus is saying and goes even beyond that, a little more generous and says, should I forgive him up to seven times? Now, Peter actually, I think here is actually making a very significant allusion. Remember, he's a good Jew rooted in the Old Testament teaching. And the number seven is really important when it comes to the reality of somebody sinning against someone else. In Genesis chapter 4, we get the account of the first murder in human history. Cain kills Abel, his brother. And afterwards, Cain is worried because of his reality that he's going to face retribution for his actions in killing his brother. And in Genesis 4.15, God comes and he says he's going to put a protection around Cain, actually a mark, that if anyone should harm Cain, God would avenge him sevenfold. It's God's first kind of covering act in the reality of relationship. And I think Peter has that in mind. And he's coming and saying, wait, if my brother sins against me, do I follow God's key here and I, I forgive him seven times, right? This is what God did with Cain. Is that the approach in which I take? 
And Jesus gives a really interesting response. Look at 22. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, some of your translations might say 70 times 7, but I actually think it's 77 is the right ordering of the words. And I also think it's important because Jesus is making an allusion. If you continue reading on in Genesis 4, sin gets worse and worse and worse. And there's another man who shows up who's a descendant of Cain. This man is a man named Lamech, and Lamech is a bad dude. And at one point, Lamech boasts about his sin, and he says, if God would avenge Cain seven times, then he'll avenge avenge Lamech 77 times. Essentially, if he's going to avenge him for one sin, my sin's so bad, God will cover me 77 times. So when Jesus is making the reference that we not only forgive seven, but 77 times, I actually think he's making a plea for a posture of unlimited forgiveness. I don't think what Jesus is sitting and saying here is, you count them up 77 times, and when you get to 78, that's the limit. Then you're done. No more forgiveness. No, I think he's referencing back the spread of sin, and he's recognizing the way my community responds to the pervasiveness of sins as we embrace an approach and a posture of always offering forgiveness fully 77 times. One commentator says it this way, that what Jesus says reminds us that the unlimited revenge of primitive man has given place to the unlimited forgiveness of Christians. That the kingdom community for Jesus is marked by an unlimited posture of forgiveness towards those that sin against us. Now that naturally, I imagine, would be startling for Jesus' audience. It might be startling for you. And you can immediately raise all the questions about like, well, what about, and what does that mean, and why, and how do you actually do that, and what about this? And so Jesus, I think, already knows what's naturally going to come, and so he immediately launches into a parable. Now Jesus loves to teach in parables, right? They're stories with intentions or lessons to highlight something that he's trying to bring out. And Jesus gives us, I think, one of the most incredible parables on forgiveness. And in his teaching here, he helps us understand what forgiveness is, so when we're talking about it, what it even is, but why it's so necessary for his community to embrace. So I want to work through a little bit of this parable first, just so you can make some of the cultural connections that we might not easily make, and then there's some things that we're going to unpack in terms of what forgiveness is and why it's necessary for us. So look at verse 23. Therefore, so because of my command to forgive 77 times, therefore, The kingdom of heaven may be compared, so he's telling a parable of comparison here, to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now that's an interesting phrase, right? A talent was about 20 years wages. So you can imagine what you could potentially make over the course of 20 years in Jesus' day. But it's even a little bit more than that right? The word talent that we use was the highest monetary standard in Jesus' day. There there wasn't a higher number for money for Jesus' audience. And the word that we translate 10,000 is the word myriad was the highest descriptive number. So what Jesus is saying is the debt that this servant owed was like astronomical. If, If you wanted to go literal, we're probably talking in the billions here. But my New Testament professor in his commentary on this, he said it'd be almost like a little kid coming and saying he owed him a million gazillions, 
right? Like it's like there's, there's no way to describe how much this servant owed the king. It's an unpayable amount. But the king's a shrewd businessman, right? He wants to recoup some of his losses. So it says, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the king says, I'm going to get something back at least. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Now, in some sense, this man's statement is ridiculous. The whole point is there's no way that he could repay him, right? If, if, if 20 years earned one talent, 20 years times that, like it's impossible for him to pay back the king. He's just begging for mercy at this point. And the king responds, verse 27, and out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. So the king responds with compassion. That word pity is used elsewhere in the New Testament of Jesus, especially in the book of Matthew, when he has pity on the crowds that he sees around him. It's to have a, a compassion for the heart, for somebody's plight or situation. He recognizes the plight of the person, the hopelessness of where he's at, and he makes an incredible move to cancel the debt and to release him. But look how the servant responds. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Now, a denarii in Jesus's day was about a day's wage. So a hundred denarii probably would be about three months income. So we're probably dealing in the thousands of dollars at this point. And seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. Now, Jesus illustrates the harshness of the servant's response in, re in relationship to what his fellow servant owes him. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He says the same thing. Listen, give me time. I'll pay you back. He pleads for mercy. But the servant refused, verse 30, and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. So Jesus gives us this parable. We'll unpack the next few verses in a second because he makes a greater point. But I think in this first part, he helps us see really what the nature of forgiveness is. It's found in the contrast between the king's response of forgiveness and the servant's response of unforgiveness. Realize that both of them start in the same scenario. Someone owes them a debt. One is highly significant, a ton of money. One less so. But the reality is there is a debt that has been cured. An infraction has happened. They have been, in the words, in the, the idea of the statement, sinned against. But notice the difference in response. The forgiveness that the king displays begins with an internal compassion. He has a sense of pity. He recognizes the plight of the servant and his inability to pay back. And so there's a shift in his heart. He empathizes with the servant of his and responds out of that empathy. But notice the servant doesn't respond with empathy. There's no internal shift. He only continues in his demand. The king moves from his internal compassion to cancel the debt, to essentially absorb the cost himself and no longer demand what is owed from him based on the infraction. The man who does not forgive, continues to demand payment, even harshly for the infraction that's occurred against him. 
And so we see that forgiveness in the situation is an absorption of the debt, and unforgiveness is the continual demand to make up or pay for the debt. Finally, the king releases the person. He sets him free and essentially allows him to pursue restoration in his life. But the unforgiving servant does the opposite. He imprisons the man. He moves to bind him until the debt is ultimately paid. And so we see in the contrast the nature of forgiveness, this internal compassion that results in a canceling of debt that moves towards reconciliation and restoration. Unforgiveness is the opposite. No internal movement or empathy, a demand for repayment and the willingness to imprison in order to demand back what they feel is rightfully owed. So forgiveness then, if we look, and I think Tim Keller gives us a really helpful definition in his book, Forgive, which I would highly recommend. He gives us this definition that forgiveness is the move of renouncing revenge and opening oneself up to reconciliation and restoration. That this is the nature of forgiveness. That it's to see a debt that is owed you and be willing to absorb that, renouncing your demand for revenge and being open to reconciliation. The reality is that whenever there's sin against a person and another, what naturally we recognize is there's something to be owed. We feel it. You know it. If someone sins against you, what's your first inclination? Man, they owe me. Right? We feel this natural impulse to debt, and Jesus uses the language of debt to recognize the sin that exists within relationship. And so the move of forgiveness is actually to not demand what is owed of you, but to free that person from that debt and to open oneself up towards reconciliation. Keller, I think, out of that reality and out of this passage gives us really four helpful steps that are involved in that reality or that idea of forgiveness. One, forgiveness involves naming the wrong. This is an important reality of the nature of forgiveness. Forgiveness does not excuse the sin or deny the sin. That is not forgiveness. And sometimes when somebody sins against us, we can be prone towards that. Well, it wasn't that big a deal. Didn't matter that much. Well, I'm sure they didn't mean it. They're, they're inherently probably a good person. The problem with that is when we excuse or deny the sin, the sin is left undealt with. There's not actually anything that recognizes the reality of what is owed and makes restitution. It simply ignores it. It hides it in the back closet, but at some point it comes back out. So the starting point of forgiveness in the story is actually the naming of the debt, the recognition of the relational infraction that's taken place. The second step in forgiveness is the step of empathy, of compassion, of identifying with the perpetrator and recognizing that they are sinful in the same way that you are sinful. That's the move of compassion. It avoids superiority. If you move towards forgiveness, but you remain in a place that says, yeah, I forgive you, but I'm better than you, that's not actually forgiveness. It again, it doesn't deal with the actual infraction in the debt that is ultimately owed. The third step then that we see in this is there's actually a releasing of the liability of the person 
and a seeking not for personal payback by actually absorbing the debt incurred. Keller says it this way, and I think it's a really important phrase, that forgiveness is voluntary suffering. Forgiveness is voluntary suffering. It is absorbing the debt yourself. It is not just like ignoring it. It's not just erasing it. It's not just minimizing it. It's actually absorbing it yourself and not holding the other person personally accountable for the sin that they committed against you. Now, that doesn't mean there isn't the demand for justice. So hear me. Justice is still an important part when there's relational sin. It's not ignoring justice. It's not seeking personal revenge. It's not holding a vendetta against that person. It's releasing them. Maybe think of it like this. So imagine that a friend of yours came to you and they said, hey, I I need to borrow your car, right? I've got an errand to run or whatever. Can I borrow your your car? And you're like, sure, yeah, great. Take it, use it, use it for however long you need, whatever you want to do. And your friend goes out and uh, maybe that night they go out and they have a little bit too much to drink and they decide to go take a joyride in your car and lo and behold, they completely total the car. And they come back to you and they say, hey, I'm really sorry, Um, I smashed your car and the worst part is I don't actually have insurance right now and I don't really have the money to be able to pay you. So now all of a sudden you're faced with a choice, right? There's been an infraction, a sin against you and you're faced with a choice, right? Your choice is you can hold them accountable for their actions. Well, that's fine, but you got to make it up to me. So you better pick up a second shift or get whatever job or start to work because I need you to repay me. And and most of us would see that as, as a legitimate claim in that situation. But let's say you decided to make the choice of forgiveness. You said, you know what? I'm going to forgive you for what you've done in wrecking my car. So you know what? You don't have to pay me back. You don't have to pay the the car. Now, here's the reality. If you make that choice, you're absorbing the cost. The cost just isn't gone. You still don't have a car. So you either, either A, you've got to buy a car out of your resources or get your insurance to do it and then pay astronomical premiums for the rest of your life, or you have to just figure out another way. Like, the, the cost doesn't go away, but when you choose to forgive, you choose to absorb that cost. You take it to yourself. There's a voluntary suffering. Maybe you recognize the plight of your friend, their inability, or the effect it would have on them financially. Whatever it is, you have some sort of compassion, and you then absorb the cost to yourself. That's what forgiveness is. It's voluntarily absorbing the relational infraction. And ultimately, in hopes of pursuing reconciliation and restoration. That's the fourth part. That forgiveness is absorbing the cost, voluntarily suffering, in order to aim for reconciliation and restoration. Now, that doesn't mean like immediate trust in that situation, right? You're probably not going to be, you know what? Why don't you take my other car? (laughs) But what you're going to do is you're going to say, hey, I'm not going to hold this against you. I'm going to absorb the cost. And my hopes is that over time, there's a learn from this and a change and a shift and we can be restored in relationship, right? That's forgiveness. So an inward compassion that results in an absorption or a voluntary suffering of the cost and debt owed in order to aim for reconciliation and restoration. 
That's where it says, forgiveness is to renounce revenge and be open to reconciliation. Martin Luther King says this, and I think it's such a good reminder. Forgiveness does not mean ignoring what has been done or putting a false label on an evil act. The king doesn't, he's not ignoring the reality here. It means rather that the evil act is no longer remains as a barrier to the relationship. Forgiveness is a catalyst creating the atmosphere necessary for a fresh start and a new beginning. You see that? It removes the barrier of relationship. It absorbs the cost so that a fresh start and new beginning can happen. The king absorbs the cost so the man can have his life back. He's very easily, he could have said, hey, you, your kids, you're done, your life's over, jail for the rest of your life. He absorbs the cost in order for reconciliation and restoration to be happening, in order for a fresh start and new beginning to take place. And that is the nature of forgiveness. So sin always incurs a debt. A sin against God does this, but also when we sin against one another. And the question of forgiveness is, who will pay the debt? You have the choice. You can demand it, or you can offer forgiveness. But when you offer forgiveness, you incur the debt. You willingly suffer in the hopes of reconciliation and restoration to take place. Now, when you recognize that that's the nature of forgiveness, I think there's a couple things that we need to to realize about that. One, forgiveness is both an inward and outward reality. So what we see is there's an inward shift. There's a a willingness to forgive. And and we see this even in the language of Jesus. He says elsewhere that if you're standing and you realize that someone has something against you, forgive them. Right? That there's an inward reality of forgiveness. We have to be open and posture ourselves to be willing to absorb the debt of the sins that happen against us. But there's also an outward reality. It's not a different forgiveness. It's two parts. The outward reality of forgiveness is when the person is willing to repent, we then are willing to offer. And that's where reconciliation begins to take place. Our first step is we have to posture ourselves to be open to forgiveness. If someone refuses to repent of their sin, then you can't pursue the second part and ultimately reconciliation. But that doesn't shift the posture. That doesn't shift the way in which we're meant to approach it. Our job, our role in forgiving is voluntarily seeking to voluntarily suffer for the sake of restoration. The second part that we need to realize then of the nature of forgiveness is forgiveness is a choice. It's not a feeling. It's a decision of the will in how you approach someone else. It's not just, oh, I feel forgiving. No, it's a choice, a voluntary suffering, a choice to absorb for the sake and hope of reconciliation and restoration. When you make the choice to forgive, you refuse to hurt directly. You refuse to come after that person, seek vengeance for what's been done to you. You refuse to hurt them indirectly. You absorb the pain. You don't go around to others and go, can you believe they did that to me? You absorb that personally. And you refuse to harbor ill will. You desire their good and their flourishing, not your own vengeance. Again, don't hear me. That doesn't mean there isn't justice. I'm talking about your personal revenge here. There's a shift in your heart and your approach to that person. And that's a choice, a conscious choice that takes multiple choices. 
It's a posture, a way in which you live towards the other. And I think if we really recognize the nature of forgiveness, what we need to recognize is forgiveness is really, 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 really hard. It's really, really hard. It takes a toll emotionally. It takes a toll personally. There's a discipline to live with a posture of forgiveness. It's a long road of intentionally, voluntarily suffering. And I don't know about you, but I'm not quick to volunteer to suffer. That's not my normal disposition. I'm not normally in the place of like, ooh, suffering, sign me up for that. How can I get more of that in my life? And when you really recognize what the nature of forgiveness is, when you, when you really recognize it, it should leave you in the place of like, who on earth would do that? Why would anyone forgive? That does not seem like anything I actually want to pursue. Much easier to demand vengeance. So why forgive? And this is the genius of Jesus. Not only does he give us what forgiveness looks like, he gives us embedded in the stories why forgiveness is so necessary. And he gives us, I think, two clear indicators of why we pursue voluntary suffering for the aim and hope of reconciliation and restoration. The first thing is because we have been forgiven much. Because we have been forgiven much. The incredible comparison in the story takes place between the debt owed to the king and the debt owed to his servant. The recognition that what the, what the servant of the king owed was millions, billions, gazillions only makes it more absurd when we come to the second part of the story and we're like, you can't forget this guy a few thousand bucks? Like, you hear the story and you naturally feel it. Like, what, what are you doing? Like, do you recognize what's been done for you? And that's the whole point Jesus is trying to make. What actually motivates forgiveness, what actually creates us to be the sort of community that has a posture of unlimited forgiveness is when we recognize that God has forgiven us a million, gazillions, billions times the reality of our sin. We only embrace the posture of voluntary suffering when we recognize that God has embraced that posture towards us and he's forgiven us astronomically more than we could ever forgive someone else towards us. Have you ever stopped for a moment and just contemplated how much you sin? I know that's like, you're like, I didn't come to church to do that today. <laughs> But just for, I mean, have you ever really stopped and contemplated, like, how much you actually sin? So if the definition of sin, and what we would see biblically, is sin is any thought, word, or deed that is opposed to God's way in his kingdom. Have you ever really thought about how frequent that is for you, that that takes place? I'm not sure we do. We're good at self-deceiving. We don't really stop for a moment and think the debt that we incur against God in our sin. So maybe, maybe imagine it like this. Let's imagine one sin in your life is a piece of paper, right? One thought, one word, one deed, opposed to the way of God, outside of his law and command, right? So one sin, one piece of paper. How many sins 
have you experienced today? I'll just talk about myself, right? I don't know, maybe 10? What about the last 24 hours? I mean, I had to repent just stepping on the scale this morning from this past week. Uh, what about the last week? How about the last month? How about the last six months? What about the last year? That's almost 1,500 pieces of paper. It's probably more than that, if I'm honest with myself. And so if I was to look over the course of my lifetime, I could stack this paper to the ceiling and beyond. That's the amount of sin I have in my life. And yet, here's the reality. This is what we do against God, and we're over here because someone did one thing against us, and we're like, I'm never going to let them go of this. We've got that stack, and we're holding on to one sheet. Now, some of you might hold on to more sheets, and I recognize sin can be devious and harmful And what I'm saying. But what Jesus' point is, is if you really recognize what you do against God on a regular basis and how he's forgiven you, how absurd then it is to hold on and think that you couldn't forgive someone else. Just like the servant, you've been forgiven so much, so much. And how does God forgive you? By voluntarily suffering on your behalf. The nature of the gospel is that the perfect and holy God who's existed in perfect unity and light and glory for eternity descended as a human being embracing suffering from the moment he incarnated until he hung on the cross for your sins. God voluntarily suffered so that your entire stack could be erased. That's the nature of the gospel. I told Evelyn I wasn't going to destroy the paper for the copier too late now. <laughs> but here's Paul's words in, second, in Colossians 2. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. When you truly recognize how much God has forgiven you, you have no other option but then to be a person of forgiveness. No matter what. No matter what. And I know that's hard, but it's true. That's why C.S. Lewis famously noted, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. That's the nature of the gospel. And so when we realize that we've forgiven, been forgiven so much, how could we not respond in the same way? Listen, the foundation of your ability to forgive someone else is not in you. It's in what God has done for you. His forgiveness is the nature of our posture of forgiveness. And so if you find yourself in the journey of making the choice of forgiveness, you have to go back time and time again to the gospel and be reminded how much God has truly forgiven you. And every time you do, you refine the, mo the motivation to continue to pursue forgiveness with those around you.
There is no greater motivation for forgiveness than what Jesus Christ has done for us. So because you've been forgiven much. But the second reason is because forgiveness is the way of the kingdom. There is no way to experience true repentance and true forgiveness and not then seek to extend it. Because when you do that, there's a fundamental that transformation that takes place in your heart that then empowers you towards forgiving others. Pastor, the famous preacher J.C. Ryle said this, there is no such creature as an unforgiving Christian. That being doesn't exist. Christians forgive. We forgive because we have been transformed by the power of the gospel. If the gospel of forgiveness gets in you, it comes out of you. And it brings the fruit of relational transformation. The gospel changes our heart. Now, that doesn't mean we don't wrestle. Hear me, right? I said it really, 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 really hard. But to genuinely experience the forgiveness of God cannot leave us in a place where we'll say, I'll never forgive that person. Not if we've experienced a new birth. Not if we've been given a new heart and the fruit of the Spirit. That's why Jesus says at the point at the end, verse 35, this whole thing. So he throws him back in prison. It demands that he pays his debt. And then Jesus says in 35, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. What Jesus is saying here is, you, not, he's, what he's not saying is, you better forgive or God's going to get you. What he's trying to remind you is, if you've experienced that level of forgiveness, it will overflow with a heart of forgiveness. It's a mark of experiencing the radical transformation that comes when we put our faith in Jesus. He's not trying to compel you to forgive. He's trying to recognize what the gospel means for you that motivates your forgiveness. We all know what it means to be compelled to forgive. Right? I love, like, I have kids. They occasionally hurt each other. And, you know, as a good parent, you got to step in and be like, can you apologize to your brother for hitting him for the upteenth million time? You know, and then it comes. I'm sorry for hitting you. Ugh, right? That's the response. Like, can you forgive your brother? Yeah, I forgive you. You're like, come on, guys. Like, give me a break. We all know what it means to be compelled to forgiveness. That's not what Jesus is trying to say here. He's not trying to give you this, like, well, you better. Like, he's trying to recognize that it's this heart transformation that actually compels our forgiveness. And that only comes when we've experienced the gospel. You see, when your kid doesn't want to offer forgiveness when their brother offers an apology, they put themselves in the place of the judge. They say, I know better than you as my parent. And whenever any time we fail to forgive, we put ourselves in the place of the king. We say, I know better than you, God. There's no way this person could ever be redeemed. No way this could ever be restored. No way this could ever be reconciled. And let me tell you, when you do that, you put yourself in a prison because you're never meant to live in that place. And anytime you put yourself in the place of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, it does not go well for you. And so Jesus is offering you a path to freedom. He's saying, I've shown you the way. Now follow my example. We follow a king who voluntarily suffered and in the most heinous, 
painful moment in all of human history as the Son of God hung on a sinner's cross to pay for your sin and mine. He looked at those around them and he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Because in that, he offered us reconciliation and restoration, a way to be restored. And then he goes and says, now you be ministers of reconciliation. You go and offer that to others to aim so that reconciliation and restoration and flourishing can be the reality of our lives. You see, when sin enters the picture, you've got two ways to deal with it. Two ways. You can demand its justice. You can seek revenge. You can demand the ounce of flesh to make up for what's been done to you. Or you can forgive. And the truth and reality is that the God of all creation had the same choice. In our sin, he could have easily looked at each one of us and demanded more than a pound of flesh. He could have removed us and demanded and been vindicated in his justice. And yet what he chose to do was voluntarily suffer in order to make a way that we would not have our lives marked by the death and detriment of sin, but to experience the hope and restoration, a fresh start and a new beginning. And so how can we not embrace that same path with those around us? It's not easy, but it's where life is found. And it's why forgiveness has to mark Jesus' kingdom community. I pray it marks your life, and I pray it marks our church. And let me pray for us. Father God, we just for a moment stand, I do, just in awe of what you would do for us. How incredible that when you had every right to remove us, to seek vengeance against us for our sin, you instead loved us. You had compassion on us. And you voluntarily suffered for us. And so we just stop for a moment just, just to say thank you, just to be amazed that that's the sort of God that you are, that you would show us that kind of mercy. And so even before, God, we begin to process what it looks like to be a people of forgiveness and the relationships around us, would you just help us for a moment to stop and recognize the power and truth of the grace that you've shown us in the gospel? Even as we prepare right now to sing in response, just a song celebrating our forgiveness because of the death of Jesus Christ. I want to ask that your Holy Spirit would come and just, just do two things powerfully in this moment. One, Jesus, would you, would you bring the weight of our sin for a moment to bear on our souls? We're so good at self-deception. We're so good at thinking we're better than we are. We need your Spirit for a moment to peel back the way we blind ourselves to ourselves. And for a moment, just let us feel the weight of our sin against you. But then, God, don't leave us there. In your incredible love, would you pour out your spirit of grace to remind us that because of Jesus Christ, we don't have guilt or shame before you anymore. That we are totally forgiven and set free. 
And would that just elevate us to the place, God, of joyful celebration in what you've done for us in order to help motivate us to be the sort of people who can extend forgiveness in the world and to one another. So would you do that work right now as we sing and celebrate the good news of what Jesus has done for us? We ask this in his precious name. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.